Wait a minute. Don't I know you from somewhere? Yes. Yes. I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. There now. Nightmare. Safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. 1955? Now playing is back. To the future. It can't be done, can it? Continuing our retrospectives of movie series, we will be watching and reviewing all of the Back to the Future films. Hosted by Brock He's a very strange young man. Arnie. He's an idiot. Comes from upbringing. His parents are probably idiots too. And Stuart. He's a real nutcase. You hang around with him, you're going to end up in big trouble. These will be spoiler-filled conversations about the movies. So if you don't want to know the plots, then press stop now and play us in the future when you're done watching. My calculations are correct. You're going to see some serious shit. Today we're talking about Back to the Future Part 3, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Thomas F. Wilson, Mary Steenburgen, and Leah Thompson. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, selling you some barbed wire. (laughs) Of all the characters in the movie, you emulate the guy who sells barbed wire. That's just so random. He's just going around selling barbed wire. He's at a bar, he's on a train, but he's got the barbed wire. (laughs) And the first time I saw this, I was like, hey, it's Leland. (laughs) L.A. Law, for all those people who have no idea what I just said, he was on L.A. Law for years, Richard Dysart. So this is the rubber match of the Back to the Future trilogy, where we find our heroes in the Wild West, Hill Valley, 1885. Did we really think we were going to be here? I can tell you, I mean, obviously they tipped their hat at it in the last movie. Marty played a video game where he was doing a shootout, and computer on the in the car was saying 1885 while it was on the fritz. We knew we were going to go here, but I can honestly say when I was hearing that there was going to be Back to the Future sequels, the 80s was not kind to the Western genre. I can only think of Silverado. They really didn't make them at that time. They were very out of fashion. They were very passe. Don't forget Young Guns. Actually, Stuart, funny you should say that because I always thought the same thing, but the same year this movie came out, Dances with Wolves won the best picture. Well, yes, and that was the kickoff to really a whole lot of them. And although I think in my head that I don't like Westerns, truthfully, when I think about it, there have been a lot of really well-made Westerns in the last 10, 15 years. And it is a genre that I can go with, but not one that I ever ask for. Well, while you're off watching Bad Girls, I have to say I don't like the Western genre at all. (laughs) I really just don't. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried everything from Spaghetti Westerns to Unforgiven to this. And the closest thing to liking a Western I have is a sizable amount of respect for Blazing Saddles. (laughs) (laughs) I actually do enjoy a good Western now and then. I've watched the big classics in college like Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, High Noon, and Shane. But my favorite movie of all time is Butch Cast and the Sundance Kid. The Wild Bunch, of course, what a great movie. So yeah, I do enjoy Westerns, but I agree with Stuart. It's not something I seek out to watch. 
Like, I really feel like in a mood for a Western. But when I do sit down to watch one, more or less, I typically enjoy them because they're just different kinds of movies. They, they flow differently. They feel differently. And sometimes a good Western just hits the spot. And, you know, they've done wisely. They've kept it in the spirit of things. You mentioned Blazing Saddles, and I think that is the kind of Western they're asking us to be invested in. A very jokey, stereotypical, cliched, and then making fun of its own cliches kind of Western. I mean, this certainly isn't gritty by any stretch of the imagination. It's silly, as uh, Mel Brooks might have done, and I would argue a silly, more cliched version of its decade than the 50s were in the last two movies. Absolutely, because the writers obviously had a fondness and a nostalgia for the 50s, whereas nobody really has that for the 1800s. Now, what's <laughs> funny is, you said, did we expect to go here? As I said, I haven't seen these movies since theaters, but the betrayal I felt at seeing the trailer for part three and seeing that they went to the Wild West is something that's stuck with me low these 20 years. And so when I'm re-watching Back to the Future 2 for this series... I I just wrote down every instance of something screaming at us about the Wild West, be it Marty playing the video game, be it when they go to Biff's evil casino, that there's a videotape that just happens to mention Mad Dog. Didn't notice that one. Good catch. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah. They insert so many things, like Doc talking about how he wanted to see the Wild West and all that, but it just doesn't fit. And part of me thinks, well, why didn't I pick up on that? And the other part is because who in the hell would do that? Who would do this? It's like, you know, you could drop all the breadcrumbs you want, but if you think it's going off a cliff, you're not going to follow that trail. I just was so dumbfounded that this is where the series went. It's just so damn random. It's the kind of thing you felt like they would have done for that cartoon series where they're just popping around any old place in time. There's nothing about the story from the outset that would make you think that it needs to go here. That said, we get there pretty quickly and are basically seeing the founding of the town, the invention of the clock tower, which I thought was kind of a nice thing, and the arrival of the immigrants of the McFlies. So they are tying it to the other two movies. It just definitely throws me for a loop. I got to say, it took me a little bit longer to get into this one than the last two. Yeah, because there's no reason for them to go to the Wild West any more than there would be a reason for them to go to medieval England. They could have gone at any time. It just it doesn't fit with the story. I understand that point. It seems like it does come out of the blue. But on the other hand, I found it awfully refreshing after the last movie because they stay in one place and it's a bunch of jokes and a bunch of situations in one place. Like in the first movie, you had a bunch of stuff in the 50s. Now we have a bunch of stuff in the 1885s, whereas the last movie, they were all over the place. And I kind of like how the movie just settled in. It was actually a beginning, middle and end once they got to Western Hill Valley and had get out of there as opposed to time traveling willy-nilly wherever they wanted to. Oh, I agree. Yes, it's much less busy than that second chapter is. And it, you're right, it is refreshing to be in one place. They actually sort of flip the circumstance of the first movie. I noticed the same thing, that this one felt a lot more structurally like the first one than... Yep. 
the second one did. And when I went in to see this third one the first time, I kind of figured, well, yeah, the Wild West, but they won't be there long, you know, because the last one, they hopped all over the place. There were four different time periods represented there if you count the two different 85 separately. Yeah, they sold the second movie as being all in the future, and then when you get there, you find out it's only really 20 minutes. And why wouldn't the West be the same kind of bait and switch? That was only 20 minutes? God, that felt like forever. <laughs> the other thing they bring back here is the canard of Doc is going to be shot and killed, which is right out of the first one. Here you have Marty stuck in the 50s and you get that wonderful bit of interplay from the end of part two. And then he and the 1950s Doc have to find the DeLorean that 1980s Doc left in 1885 hidden in a mine, and they dig it out, but they find that even though Doc left a note saying, don't come back for me, I'm very happy here with Clara in the 1800s, a few days after he wrote that note, Doc was shot and killed, and that's right out of the first one again, only instead of the Libyans, it's Mad Dog Tannen. Right, right. They've done a pretty good job of finding the conventions that worked in the first movie and working back into this movie, and and they're in the second movie too, but this time it feels different because it's just taking a breather. It's not running around it's not so frantic you know also time travel is special again the second movie we really took it all for granted this time since they can't travel so easily it really is something that we can get invested in and how they're going to get back because they're stakes I didn't feel the stakes they set up in the second movie were something that I needed to care about. One thing you did mention, they found out that Doc got shot. How they found out that Doc got shot in 1885, a few days after the letter, always makes me laugh. Because basically the dog, Copernicus, apparently can read. Because he read the tombstone that said Doc Brown. Now, whether or not he was just peeing on the thing and Marty saw it, it always looks to me that the dog is calling Marty over to read this tombstone out loud. Uh, It didn't bother me. I didn't really notice it. The introduction of the tombstone is something that they play with for the entire movie. So it is an important device. He had to find it some way. I guess a dog works as good as anything. Uh, Honestly, (laughs) the dog never worked for me. I mean, he never does much. So why not give him that little bit? Sure. And talk about bringing back a convention from the first movie, of course. We should also mention they also use the photograph of the tombstone. They do indeed. They take a Polaroid in the 1950s. Let's keep this straight. In the 1950s, they take a Polaroid of the tombstone that when Marty is back in 1885, he looks at and it's slowly unveiling what it will read. It's meant for someone. At first, they think it's Doc and then that could potentially change. What's really funny about your statement, Stuart, is people today won't know what a Polaroid was. People in the (laughs) 50s didn't have Polaroids. He actually just took an old-timey camera. (laughs) So when Marty travels to the Old West, he runs into Indians who pop the gas tank, which then makes them not be able to drive 88 miles an hour. Now, that's supposed to be a big gag, is Marty's at a drive-in theater, and he's running right at a wall with some Indians. And the whole thing is the wall won't be there when you're in the past. But no, what's there? Indians. Real Indians. Yeah, that made me groan. That was not funny. Was that a joke that worked for you? you guys because it was such a big joke and it happens actually like twice it was telegraphed it was completely telegraphed mm-hmm. you know and one little bit more about the indians is i feel like they missed an opportunity here when they go back to the 50s they show some of the racial segregation that goes on between blacks and whites and that the blacks end up befriending marty and help him with his problem with biff and you get that tension here the indians show up and they're never seen again and i feel like wow why 
reintroduce them as characters and then not show how they're being oppressed in the Old West. I feel like they were just a cheap device. You're right. It was a visual sight gag to go from the drive-in to see them there. Anything could have popped that gas tank. I don't know why they had to go the Indian route. It could have been the bear in the cave, you know? My rules always, yeah, as a screenwriter, is if you introduce it, you have to use it. And they, they didn't. Exactly. For a screenwriter who wrote the first movie where nothing was extraneous, to not have the Indians come back at any point in the movie is a little bit odd. Yeah, it it could have been there. If only as background characters. I'm not saying a major storyline element, but they totally disappear after they've done this thing to the DeLorean. So then Michael J. Fox passes out again and he's woken up again. This time he's in his great grandparents' house in Hill Valley in 1885. And of course, it's Michael J. Fox in a really bad red wig and an even worse fake Irish accent. (laughs) And we finally figure out what this whole chicken nonsense was. It was an Irish joke. He is of Irish descent, McFly's, and I suppose we're meant to think that the reason he has such a short temper is because, well, that's what Irish people are like, which kind of shows you the humor level of this particular chapter. I actually never got that. I never got that either. Do you think they could have put Crispin Glover in this role? Because Michael J. Fox, God bless him, is absolutely terrible uh, playing (laughs) Seamus, the Irish great-grandfather, whatever he is. He's just terrible. Every time he's on screen doing that bit, I just wince and and want him to go away. You think it was maybe meant for Crispin? And I'm sure Chris would have made it his own. Even if it wasn't, you didn't have to use Crispin Glover. You could have used any other actor besides Michael J. Fox, and we would have bought it. Mm -hmm. To have Michael J. Fox there for the cute thing of him being all his relatives... And then having the McFly's have a thing for Leah Thompson's. That Leah Thompson thing really annoys me because I want to know where the incest is in the McFly lineage. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's starting to look a little Oedipal if all the time they marry the same woman. It's it's a little too close. I could believe that down the father's line, the genes are passed so that they all look almost like clones. But the fact that Leah Thompson's genes are coming down the McFly side, which has to be the father's side because of the last name, at some point that gene spurs off to be Lorraine who marries back into the McFlies that really bothers me you know it's I know that they're not trying to say there was incest however the lack of attention to detail for continuity on this bugged the crap out of me yeah it's a running joke you know at this point that is the every joke is a callback to something they've done in the previous movies and honestly you could have left Leah Thompson out of this one she's there just to make Michael J. Fox's Irish accent look better yeah (laughs) And obviously they wanted to keep her in the movie somehow, so they put her in this role. But honestly, you could have taken out the entire McFly subplot of the ancestors of him. I mean, it's kind of a nice touch, I guess. But for me, every time I see Seamus and whatever her name is, Maggie, I think, I didn't really care. The parts of the movie when they show up, eh, they're okay. I don't really need them. No, we're there to find out what happened to Doc. That's all that we care about. They know that the McFlies had settled there and what they were like and the idea that Seamus might be learning something from Marty, which isn't very clear to me. I mean, is he, he's there at the big shootout. Are we meant to think that he has a story arc? Does this history get changed by him observing his great 
great grandson at the shootout? I think it's reversed. He influences Marty, but I don't think Marty influences him. At least if so, that was not something I got. Right. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't figure it out, but I find it actually really sad that all of these families have lived in this town for a hundred years. Yes. I mean, maybe it's because I'm the son of an immigrant, but I don't know anybody who really even lives in the same town as their parents, let alone their grandparents. All right, I guess I do know some people, but to go back this far, don't these people ever move? The fact that it's Mad Dog Tannen and the McFlies and all of this, I was surprised Doc didn't have a great-grandfather floating around in this town. Except he seems to have no lineage. He came from nothing and went on to be nothing. Well, yeah, they do establish in the first one that he has the mansion, and so that he must come from some kind of wealth that has been there for a while. But yeah, who knows? You know, and I brought up when we were talking about the first movie that there were a lot of details that reminded me of It's a Wonderful Life. And one of them was the idea that George always wanted to get out the character in It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart's character. Not George McFly. (laughs) Always wanted to escape his small town. And the fact that he was trapped there sort of did remind me of that insular quality that Back to the Future has. The more they go on about it. The more sequels and all the alternate timelines, the more that that becomes a problem. I I had a big problem with it in part two because I thought if Biff was going to become rich and famous, he would not settle and open a giant casino in Hill Valley. He would go to Vegas. He would go to, you know, Dubai. I don't know where he'd go, but he would not go and open one in Hill Valley. That's stupid. You don't think he'd rather be a big fish in a small pond because Biff is that kind of guy? Biff had the winning scores. Yeah. At that point, he could be a big fish in a big pond. I mean... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He had all the winning scores for every game ever. He didn't have to stay in a small pond, you know? Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. It is a curious thing to see that it's the same characters bumping up against each other decade after decade. But it's the running joke that they like, and... What's funny is it almost comes off as an eternal struggle of Tannen versus McFly, only it has no weight behind it at all. It's just, haha, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Buford for a second there, because we're here. In the first movie, Arn even brought it up, that cartoonish quality. And with Buford, he seems to be like, he's a dangerous character, and he has a temper, and he gets really serious, but oftentimes he's come off as a fool. And for me, I enjoy the characterization. I actually had a good time with Thomas Wilson's characterization. I realize it's over the top and all that kind of stuff, but it's a family Western. And so for me, it works. And I think it's a lot different than the other stuff he's done that we've seen in the other two movies. And it was a very interesting choice. They went so big with it. Here's my thing with Buford, Mad Dog, whatever. Just look at this character. And it's supposedly another incarnation of Biff, who in the first movie was a rapist. In the second movie was a murderer and a bank robber. And now he's kind of a killer, but he's much lighter here. And he has really no weight as a villain. He's again kind of back in that role he was in the first one where he's an obstacle. But the whole thing isn't about the Biff character, the Tannen character. It's not about Mad Dog. The thing is about getting out of there, and yes, Mad Dog is kind of the axe that's going to fall and kill one of them if they don't get out in time, but it's not about fighting him the way it was in part two. Right. And you mentioned his performance, and I thought Thomas F. Wilson was terrible in all of his incarnations in part two. In part three, 
I loved him. He got into that character. Yep. And I don't even like that type of character, but I went with it. And everything that he did as an actor, I went with. I disagree with a lot of the writer's choices. Like, not only is there a tannin in there every time, but he has to say all these wrong phrases, like, make like a tree and get out of here. You know, I know that's not what he said in this one, but those types of lines. Not only the same looking person, the same actor, but they talk the same way. They're just basically role-playing or cosplaying. Well, that is a theme in Back to the Future is that history repeats itself and that generation after generation is just like the next one unless they make a big, big stand. You know, I just felt like this character was sort of a live action version of Yosemite Sam. And knowing that Zemeckis was coming off of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I think that it might have almost been intentional. I mean, he's a hothead. He's essentially Biff as Yosemite Sam. And uh, he's there to start the time clock because otherwise Marty and Doc could take as long as they wanted to to figure out how to get the car up to 88 miles and get him back to the future but because we know that this mad dog buford character is going to kill doc on this date as it said on the tombstone and then that changes and they think it might be marty that's going to die at that time but regardless we believe that because there's going to be a showdown they have to get out of there the morning before the showdown and that's essentially why this character is important in this installment they thought he was shot on that date but actually what's kind of fun about it is he got shot two days before and it would took him two days to die which i thought was really cool because back then you know medicine being what it was mm-hmm. and so that was really cool they kind of slipped that in there because at the dance he gets the gun in his back kind of thing so i thought that was great that their timeline was completely off they just assumed and we talked about this in the first movie how you know if you really want to get technical about time at what second did the lightning hit the clock tower well here they didn't even think about that and it could have changed the entire thing but i always like that little plot detail i didn't really mind the same characteristics throughout the characters because of the reason stewart said that i kind of like that history does repeat itself whereas with morty waking up and talking in his sleep and thinking against his mom that kind of joke got very stale this time hunt him down like a duck I thought was funnier because it fit the character better. I, I kind of enjoyed it. Have his, his first-hand crony helping him count. Can't count the Marty out of the bar. Or correcting him about how he can't shoot him on Saturday because they're out of town or whatever. Don't have his guns or whatever the reasons they gave. Those kind of things, that made the character more fun for me. I really enjoyed that this guy was a stupider version <laughs> of Biff. I could go with they're all being stupid. I could go with that because that's believable. And I could go with history repeats itself in situations. It's just that basically, again, it's the same character every time. And that's not history repeating itself. That's these creators of this movie thinking, oh, aren't we clever? Well, yeah. it's part of the fun of the series and why I'm a fan of this series because of these little nuances that kind of run through, for example, with this character in particular. I kind of like that. And I consider it to be a betrayal of part one because in part one, they had a few similar mannerisms between Marty and George McFly. They had a realistic level of similarity. However, I think what happened is Robert Zemeckis went off and made his cartoon and then came back and made these, but he's still in cartoon land and it bugs me. Yeah. I kind of concur with that. I will say this. Most of the humor kind of fell flat for me, and I did feel like you were saying a lot of it was more clever than actually good. I could appreciate it intellectually, like, but it didn't make me laugh. But one joke that it made me laugh, I really enjoyed.
enjoyed it. In the original Back to the Future, Marty is dubbed Calvin Klein in the 1950s because he's wearing Calvin Klein underwear, and they don't know what designer underwear is back in the 1950s. In this one, he has chosen the moniker of Clint Eastwood because he kind of is costuming himself to look like the man with no name. And then when he's called a chicken, they say, do you want to think that everyone thinks that Clint Eastwood is the most yellow-bellied person that ever walked Hill Valley? Stuart, this is for you. Everybody everywhere will say Clint Eastwood is the biggest yellow belly in the West. There you go. It's a good one. I I (laughs) smile every time. I smile now. Great. It's it really funny. Made me laugh. I like that yeah, one. Yeah, I actually think it would have been a hair funnier if they could have had Clint Eastwood in the barbed wire salesman role or something, you know? Or the mayor. Yeah, that would have been fun. That yeah, would have been I fun. Yeah. I would have liked that. I would have I would have found that clever. The one joke that got me, and I just went, all right, good one, was throughout all these movies, Marty keeps going, this is heavy, and Doc kept saying, great Scott. They reverse it at one point, and Marty goes, great Scott, and Doc goes, yeah, this is heavy. Mm-hmm. Yep. That I thought was funny. It was like, that one, it felt like it had paid off after having watched four hours of the converse. Right. And I also laugh every single time I see that. But the one I also laugh at every single time time is when doc finally drinks the drink and he faints and marty goes oh, how many did he have just the one and he michael j fox's look just one i always laugh at that look you see i think that's the difference between you in this movie brock and me in this movie you laugh at these jokes every time yeah i kind of chuckled the first time and never found any of them funny again because i just don't think they're that good the first movie has jokes that i can laugh at time and time again and these sequels do not And that's really interesting because for me in this movie, more than the last one, and again, why I'm a fan of the series is I really enjoy the characters in this movie. So when I'm laughing, I'm enjoying the ride these characters are on because, again, like the first movie, although not as much, admittedly, I am taking the ride with them. I'm invested in what's going on with Marty and Doc in the Old West. And so we've spent so much time with these characters that when they have interplay between each other, like the great Scott stuff like you just mentioned, or this part with the drink I just mentioned, when Doc comes out from the back and says, what I really miss here is Tylenol, that's the perfect thing for him to say in that moment. It's because that's what the character would say. I really see the characters come alive for the first time since the first movie, and that's why I'm a fan of this series. This one really shows that I think they really built something to last better than the last one with this movie in the characterizations. But you don't see that. You don't see that. For me, I see it. Yeah, and you're here bringing the fans' viewpoint, and I'm here bringing the viewpoint of somebody who went into these movies again with an open mind but didn't like them then and doesn't like them now. And. (laughs) You know, I like the first one. I want to be very clear. But perhaps the second one just spent all credit it had. But I don't feel any affection for the characters in part three because they're the same ones I suffered through in part two. Is it the right thing for the character to say that he wants some Tylenol? I don't freaking know. They wrote the characters. I guess it is. It's whatever the writer says the character says. You know, I don't think these characters have much cohesiveness there. And I don't think this movie was all that great. Well, I'll say this. I think they pulled the carriage back from the cliff. I think that part two, the characters were going overboard and becoming parodies of themselves. And in this one, it particularly seems to me like a Doc movie and that they spend a lot more time with Doc and that Christopher Lloyd, who definitely has a habit of doing too much, showed a sweeter side, partly because they give him a love story here and partly because he's dealing with his own mortality. And I just think that it's probably his best performance in all three of the movies and that if you like the Doc character, this is the movie for you. 
you are completely right on everything you just said. This movie is miles above part two. It kind of, to me, splits the difference between the real high highs of one and the plummeting depths of two. And I also agree that I wrote this in my notes. They gave Doc something to do in this movie. And I liked seeing that because it was fresh. It was something original. But let's talk about his love interest, Mary Steenburgen. Now, I had to look it up on IMDb on how old she was because Christopher Lloyd was pushing 50, give or take, when this movie was filmed. And Mary Steenburgen looked to be his equivalent in age. And I was shocked to find out that when this movie was filmed, she was my age. And I just think, has this woman always looked old? (laughs) (laughs) She was only 35 or so when she filmed this role? Yeah. Isn't that You're shocking? Kidding. I yeah. know. Yeah. What the hell? Do I look that old? <laughs> I. She looks like the 50-year-old school marm that I thought she was. Well, she is a school marm and tends to be typecast as sort of the pent-up woman. I've never seen her cut loose and be the vixen. I don't know that she could. And maybe, you know, God knows, I, I'm not up on her whole repertoire. Maybe she's done those movies. But every time I think of her seeing in the movie, she's usually playing a button-down character. And that's probably why she got this part. She seems perfect for Doc. Their foil is nice. And I really like the fact that she being a, a literate person and bringing education to Hill Valley, she and him sharing a love for Jules Verne, I thought was a really nice touch that they would both like stories of time travel. And to her, it's science fiction. And to him, of course, it is the reason why he's there. All of that works very, very well here. I agree. It also helps her get convinced at the end of the movie that he was telling the truth. That I thought the Jules Verne thing and the connection between the two of them worked on so many levels in the movie. And then at the end of it was kind of a cute little smile thing they did for us at the end with the kids. You're right. It is a very fulfilling romance story here. It is well done, well acted, and it is a believable thing. And after three movies of seeing Doc just be this crazy weirdo, it's a little touching to see him find a connection with someone. Mm-hmm. I completely him. agree. I also love the little nuances also they put in about her character supposed to fall in the ravine and then how Doc was going to meet her and then he blew her off and then he saved her life anyway and how it all went down in history and basically history almost actually happened but when doc was back before marty went back doc had changed the history already it's really convoluted and crazy but if you think about it for a few minutes that whole thing works and for someone like myself who's seen these movies over and over again when they have stuff like that it's fun because i got to put it together myself it's all right there if if you look when marty and doc were first looking into the train pushing the delorean up to 88 miles an hour you see mary steenburgen's back she's waiting on the platform for someone to pick her up you don't notice that the first time you watch it and that kind of stuff is really neat that they threw in for the repeat viewer or just for their own sake i don't know why they did it but it's fun to see it's there Hmm. Well, you know, let's talk about that a little bit because, yeah, built into this is the idea that she is supposed to fall down the canyon, that the canyon is named after her. Her name's Clara Clayton, and it's Clayton Canyon in the 1980s, and that by changing this, they may have changed the entire future in a way that might have negative consequences. We really don't know because we're staying in the 1885 Hill Valley. 
But that was a big thing. That reminded me of how in the first movie, Marty prevents his father from meeting his mother when the dad hits the car. But there's no real consequence from saving her from falling from the canyon. I thought that was strange, particularly since they could have written it that uh, her death was supposed to have happened because the train went off the cliff. And maybe it's Clayton Canyon because she was in the train that went off the cliff at the end of the movie. Yeah, and Eastwood Ravine at the end is a kind of a Twin Pine Mall, Lone Pine Mall kind of gag that if you see it, you see it. If you don't see it, you don't see it. But it's there, and it's yeah. like kind of like a background joke, which is fun. It's a fun little smile. Here's the only problem I have with this love story. Again, I thought it was very well done, but did either of you guys feel like this movie kind of dragged a little bit compared to the last one where it was so full of action to the point of breathlessness? At some points, I was kind of like... Can we get on with it just a little bit? Can we progress things a bit? They were waiting around for a train to come, literally. And I kind of felt I was waiting for a train to come. A train of some plot that would (laughs) move down the track. Yeah. Well, I think it's just weird because we've been so accustomed to thinking that what Marty is doing is the most important thing on screen. And here, he's a much less interesting character than almost anyone else. He really seems to have very little to do when he's not being Seamus or whatever. (laughs) But uh, Keyword there being shame. (laughs) We're supposed to think that Michael J. Fox is the star of this movie, and this time around he isn't. So it's weird in the scenes where he is the focal point. I don't know. It was an adjustment. And I concur, the movie did seem to drag a little bit. Maybe some of that is the fact that we're in a stodgy old Western. Yeah, and I think exactly what it is. It's the pacing's a little slower. I always took it because it was a Western. I never think this movie drags. Actually, for me, again, as the fan, I really am into everything that's going on. I enjoy watching the story unfold. I kind of like that it takes its time, especially after the last one, where it's so frenetic. I like every scene that's in the movie. And could you cut a couple of scenes out of this movie oh yeah i I bet you could if you really wanted to but i (laughs) already put down the scissors (laughs) yeah seriously but i enjoy each sequence so i don't know i just think that at this point zemeckis and gail they're so full of themselves that they're just overly indulgent in every regard Oh, sure. Oh, sure. But if either you enjoy it or you don't, you know what I mean? Like, and you can go along to a point like you are, and that's great. I'm really happy to hear that you enjoyed parts of the movie. That's great. For me, it kind of rounds out more stuff. Do I need Strickland there as the sheriff or the marshal, whatever? No, I don't need that. That kind of stuff you could probably cut. I wouldn't miss it at At all. At least he didn't call them slackers. Yes. (laughs) I was was bracing for that. I was like, how are they going to work that in there? And how loud will I groan when they do? (laughs) I was right there with you, Stuart. They don't do it. They resist. And God knows there's a draft or two probably sitting somewhere in Bob Gale's house where they did somehow work that in there as some kind of pun. But they resisted. Can we talk a little bit about time travel? Because I feel like, Arnie, you spoke about betrayals. I feel like the one betrayal that they do here that is not in the other two movies is how Doc has flip-flopped on his policy towards time travel. He starts off, he builds a time machine. He, As an observer, he wants to see history and experience experience it and live beyond the span of his life. And in the second one, he's realized the error of his mistakes and he wants to destroy the DeLorean. But here, he can't quite make up his mind whether it's a good thing to mess around with time or not. 
He still wants to destroy it for the majority of the movie, which makes the ending just a complete confusion. But yes, he wants to destroy it. And that's why when Marty finally gets back to the future and he happens to come in because he can never not hit something when he travels through time, apparently he gets hit by a train because he's on train tracks and he goes, well, Doc, you got what you wanted. The DeLorean's destroyed. So up until like the last 10 minutes of the movie, Doc like time travel's bad time travel's bad so if we're ready to talk about the ending then the complete end where all of a sudden he is outfitted a steam engine with the flux capacitor and flying gear and is traveling all through time with clara having babies what yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a desire to see him. They don't want to leave him in the past. You know, I thought it was really strange that they go back at all to save him because it's like, well, he dies. Um, yes, he's going to die. If he was in the 1885, he's not going to still be alive. He's not immortal. He's not going to be alive in 1955 or 1985 or whatever. I guess I was okay with that. I don't see why you would need to change that. I was shocked that what didn't happen was he didn't bring Clara to 85 to live with him because she was supposedly dead already. And so removing her from that timeline wouldn't have an impact. In fact, it would correct their mistake. That's exactly what I thought. When the train went off and they went off on their way, I thought that history would still say that the school teacher went over the cliff and that they could go about their life somewhere else. But I thought he loved the Old West and I thought that they could and maybe should have stayed there. The idea that they've started a family that time travels, presumably mucking up the timelines, I feel like is not very dock of him. Okay, I'm going to go right in the middle of this. I think it's a really fun, satisfying, big old smile of an ending. This is a family picture. This is a movie with a happy ending, and we see what happens to Doc. And he has a family, all the kids. It's really cute. And the joke of it being outfitted for hovercraft and coming towards a screen, with that's blatantly a tip of the hat to the original ending of the first movie, which is so satisfying. For my money, one of the best endings of a movie of all time is the first movie. It's so much fun. Leaves you with a big smile on your face after watching that long movie about time travel. What a great way to end it. And yes, technically speaking, you are absolutely correct about how it's inconsistent. But on the other hand, it's a nice ending. It's a really sweet, put a bow on it kind of ending. I like the ending. We have done a lot of movie series that I'm a fan of. Yeah. And I've been their defenders, but I have never once shown such blind adulation of a series as you're showing here. You're like, yep, it's flawed. I love it. And I just can't even grasp that. It, it's flawed. You may enjoy the series, but if you can't point out the flaws, then... That becomes almost creepy. I completely agree with you that it's against the character. What I'm saying to you is that as an ending of the movie and of the series, it's a big old button on it. It's just all there is to it. It's a happy ending. It's a betrayal of the series, but it makes you smile because they did it. It's like what Stewart said to me with Star Trek V. If Zemeckis took a big crap on film, you'd like it because it's part of the series. Not true. Well, I didn't like the last one. I didn't like the last one at all. I actually said don't watch the last one, even though I'm a fan of this series. I couldn't get past those things. I completely agree with you that the doc that we've met and he's flip-flopping this movie, you know, he wants to stay with Clara and stay in his time until Marty talks him down. And then when she was going to die, they decided to take her with them and then they go off on the hoverboard, all that kind of crap. But the point is, yes, it is completely against the character, 
but it's a big old happy ending. So whether a happy ending or not is consistent with what we watch with the character, I don't know if it matters at that point because it's just the ending of the movie. It's just a big old smile at the end of the movie. So it's not that big a deal. I hear what you're both saying. And I think I understand why it's agitating you, Arnie. But I think what Brock is right about is it's the kind of ending we wanted to see for this series. It's the way we wanted to feel when we walked out of there, as long as we don't think about it too much. (laughs) If you think about it too much and you think about how it ties in or doesn't tie in with what they set up, it is irritating. It is frustrating. It is a betrayal, but it leaves us on the surface giving us exactly what we came there for. So I guess it's a good ending if you don't think about it too hard. I'll say one more thing on this, and then I'll, then I'll let it go, is that this entire movie is a lighter fare. It's, this one really feels more like a family movie than even the last one does. because even when Or even the little, first one. Yeah, it's really light. And so this kind of ending, I guess, really makes it more of a family picture entirely. So... That also is why I think it works for this. But yes, I completely concur that if you think about it too much, (laughs) you're right. You can find it. But then again, we can think about the time travel thing in the first movie. Even though we love that scene with the clock tower, we can nitpick it if we wanted to. But you don't have to. While we're nitpicking things, can I ask where in the hell Doc got 1.21 gigawatts in the 1880s for any of this time travel? Oh, he eliminated that with Mr. Fusion. On Marty's, but how did Doc's train get 1.21 gigawatts? Uh, maybe I he uh, studied it uh, in the couple of days he had with the vehicle. He said the parts weren't even going to be around until the 40s. Yeah, well, yeah, it's okay. Okay, sufficiently picked on this. Yes, I would okay. just say this to take this in an entirely different direction. If I were going to travel around time, I think I would want something a little less conspicuous than a flying steam powered train engine. I mean, Doctor Who went around in a phone booth and that <laughs> kind of sticks out, but a flying train? Especially a phone booth of the future. When are phone booths now? Yeah, a flying train really doesn't fit in with any any era. Well, then again, if you want to do a nitpick, why is he on the train tracks at all? If he has a flying train, he can appear anywhere he wants to, but he actually appears in the end on the tracks. So if you want to go, we can go. And how does he know Marty's going to be at the tracks at that time? Well, here's the thing. The end of this movie sucks. Much like part one where I said anything in the 80s just didn't work for me, but I love the 50s. Even though I hate the Wild West, just in general... The Wild West was the portion of this movie that worked, but they just can't get the 80s right. In all three Back to the Future movies, never once have I been happy to be in the 80s, including this one. We come back, we get the return of Flea. (laughs) You know, the stupid-ass chicken storyline is resolved by Marty not being chicken because he, in the 1880s, physically had to see his name on a tombstone, fading in brighter the more he went to challenge someone who was calling him chicken. It took that level of message for him to not care that he's being called a chicken. So the chicken storyline gets resolved, yay. Elizabeth Shue gets five more minutes of screen time, what a waste. Yeah, I didn't realize she was still in the movie. And then Doc shows up. Anything that happens after he gets out of the 1800s, you know, I never thought my favorite period of any movie would be the 1800s period. (laughs) But here, you know, as soon as they got back to the future, it was like as bad as part two. I will say this and agree with you in full force. The way that they try to resolve Marty's temper issue by having him avert the traffic accident that's going to cost him his rock career 
I said it from the first podcast. Marty's not a rocker. They should have never had that in there. It's irritating. It doesn't work. And this resolution is forced to say the least. It's terrible. And he's not a brawler either, you know? The idea that Needles, the flea character, would be the one to cause the car crash. I didn't realize it was happening like the next week either after they imply that he's going to have a car accident. I would just say, why didn't Doc just come back and prevent him from being in the car at that time? You know, rather than taking them off to the future to mess with their kids, he should have come back a week later and said, hey, don't play chicken with needles on the road. (laughs) Yeah, but Marty would have heard him being called a chicken and it would all go out the window. Mm. I guess. Yeah. But, you know, like Brock said, it's a family movie, so character motivations don't really have to matter. Being called chicken's all it takes. This whole chicken thing seems extremely forced in both movies, and they wanted, I guess, to give an arc for Marty. And I completely agree. It kind of doesn't really work at all, ever. And so, what do you want me to tell you? It just doesn't work. But they put it in here, and they feel happy with it, and it's there, and I can't do anything about it, but... I think it would work with a different actor. You know, I mentioned Robert Downey Jr. You know, I I had a thought about another one. What about Sean Penn? Let's imagine an alternate reality in which Sean Penn got this role. I think he could have been an interesting choice for Marty. That's all I'm saying. If you wanted to write a character that had a temper issue and had a little bit more of an edge and was a rock star, aspiring, all of that, you might have done better with Penn than Michael J. Fox, which is not to say that Michael J. Fox was wrong in the part. They made it work, and he's certainly talented with his comic timing in these movies. I just, again, was reminded in these very bad scenes in which we're meant to believe that he has this flaring temper that costs him a rock career that uh, (laughs) he's not capable of it. You know, I think that in the first movie you said he didn't come off as a rocker to you, but it's forgivable in the first movie because they had a script for several years before it got made and then they got that actor. But when they wrote parts two and three, they knew what they were getting. Mm -hmm. And so this is completely inexcusable. Yeah, I mean, didn't they see Teen Wolf? You had to know what range he doesn't have. So... Yeah, I didn't buy his wolf rage. I'm not going to buy his time traveler's rage. And the thing is, I would have honestly just sitting here armchair quarterbacking the thing. How about have something that happened in part one create this character defect? Like he has an ego or something because he fixed everything or something like that. He has an ego problem. I could go with arrogant for Michael Mm -hmm. Jackson. I just can't go with scrappy. Mm. Yeah, I agree. There was probably many different ways they could have gone. I understand the need to give him a problem that he corrects in the course of the two movies and that by jumping around in time that solves it that's good storytelling i just don't believe that you can solve someone's temper in this way i don't think anybody can solve their temper if they truly have rage issues would solve it by going through this process and i certainly don't think michael j fox says that brio and you know what i think this is just symbolic of the problems i have with both of these latter movies is they are doing the right things in complete the wrong ways again and again and again there's all these things where like yeah that was a good idea if they'd done it different yeah i agree with you on the second movie entirely i think they had a lot of clever ideas in the second movie but i don't like the way it was executed here i think a lot of more of the ideas they had worked but you could have had your family friendly ending that fit but done it different without a flying locomotive and could have put this script through one more draft and have doc reconcile his time travel things rather than have it be so out of the blue you could have done everything they did but made it work if they just done it a little different Every intent they had with part three, I believe, was good. The execution, not quite so much. 
the only issue I had at the end of the movie was the train sequence, which was very exciting, and I like how different colors and all that kind of stuff, was when they climbing on the side of the engine to get to the DeLorean and all of this stunt work that everybody was more than willing to do. I mean, transferring from a horse to a train and jumping on top of a train and all that kind of stuff is lots of fun and what happens in Westerns. But these two characters, I always found that a little bit weird, and especially with the school teacher. I know she has love on her side and all that kind of stuff, but it was an exciting sequence. But it always is in the back of my mind like, okay, I'll give it to you because it's interesting, but it really is a little stretching the credibility of these characters' abilities to risk their lives that much. It's a moving train going 65 miles an hour, and she's in very little tiny shoes on the little tiny ledge. It strains credibility, and that's the part where I always think, eh, okay, all right, I'll give it to you, but I don't really want to. I would also throw in there, there's also a lot of trick writers in this. I mean, there's a lot of stuntmen. There's a lot of like, okay, now that we got the stunt to do, we'll go to the bird's eye view. I mean, I really felt like anytime it was time to do something cool like that, I wasn't watching Mary Steenburgen and Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. <laughs> no. Fox doing it. It was, and God knows, I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating that they get out there on a moving train, but it's very obvious that it's not them. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. yeah. The illusion yeah. is broken in those moments, as fun as they are to watch. Okay, so we've come to that part of the podcast. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Back to the Future Part 3? Stuart. Well, you know what? I figured out a shorthand for it, and it goes like this. The enjoyment level of each installment is based on the theme song. You go back to the first one, Huey Lewis, Power of Love. It's cheesy. Everyone knows it's cheesy, but you can't hear it and not get excited and really get into it. It's a good pop song, and there's just no denying it. It's fun to listen to. The second movie didn't even have one. No song at all. (laughs) The third movie, ZZ Top appears to do double back. Anyone want a Hama Bar? I mean, it's a song. It's listenable, but it's not something that comes to mind very easily, and it's not something I would ever volunteer to listen to. That's Back to the Future 3 right there. It's fine. It is totally mediocre. It is okay. It has wonderful moments and a whole lot of not that great. If I wanted to watch a jokey Western, I'd watch Blazing Saddles. Would I return to Back to the Future 3? Nope, because it means sitting through Back to the Future 2. And for that reason, I would stop with the original. You, you can't go wrong. It's uh, the power of love. So, Stuart, just to clarify, you said last time that you will tell us if you recommend two based on this one. Did you just do that? I did. I don't do it at all. Three, as enjoyable as it is, is not good enough or even come close to being good enough to justify sitting through the muck. I could not agree more. Three never justifies sitting through two, and yet trying to watch three without watching two would just be confusing. So I'll rate here in my recommend, not recommend three on its own, but let it be said, I believe everybody should have stopped with one. The addendum of to be continued on VHS is the mistake that I would go back in time to correct. As for whether I recommend part three, this one's going to be very hard. I've kind of gone down the middle of it on this podcast. I've complained about some stuff, and I've given it some compliments, although because Brock is so effusively in love with this movie, I didn't give it as many as I normally would because I felt he was giving it enough compliments for all three of us. But do I recommend this movie? You know what? 
I recommend this movie to you, the listener, but I'm never watching it again because this movie is not for me. I don't like Westerns. I can appreciate what they've done, and I can realize that while they've not come anywhere close to the magic of that first movie, they've gotten some of it back. They're much more on the right track on this one. I don't know where it all went so, so wrong with part two. If part two had been on the level of part three, then it would be a great first movie with a couple of mediocre sequels. And there's so many of those out there. But as it is, you've got part one, which is really an astounding film that I've just seen too often. Part two, which is just a big turd. There's nothing redeemable about it. And you've got part three, which kind of splits the difference there. And I think the more you like Westerns, the more you'll enjoy it. I don't like Westerns, but I recommend it for you. I do agree with you. If two had been better, I probably would recommend the whole series. But as it is, both Stuart and I are saying one. Yeah. And I like this movie. It's clear that I like this movie. I said before, and I'll say it again. Every single time I watch two, I have to watch three. I enjoy this movie. I can watch this movie on its own without watching two. But if I ever see two, I got to watch three. And that's all there is to it. It's a cute, fine movie. Is it the greatest movie of all time? No. Is it as good as the first one? Absolutely not. But I enjoy watching this movie, and that's what it's all about. I do recommend it. I think it's good. Can you skip two to watch this one? Unfortunately, no. If you've seen two and you remember what happens, I guess, then you could. But there's a lot of things they hint at in two that, quote-unquote, pay off here, although I don't really feel they pay off all that well. So I do recommend this movie. But as a series as a whole, the reason I guess I'm a fan of the series is one in three more than because of all three. I think you can do worse than watch a sequel like Back to the Future 3. I mean, there are bad sequels out there. We've seen some of them. This is one of the better sequels. I do recommend it. I like it. And yeah, I agree again that it's much more well-made. And had they put it perhaps in World War II era, I might have given it a much stronger recommend. It's just Westerns aren't for me. And I would like to say that, you know, we bash 2 a lot, and I I think it deserved it, but I do appreciate what 2 and 3 try to do, which is that, you're right, we've watched a lot of bad sequels that are just knockoffs, that just disregard what has happened before, that don't care. They really did try. They really tried to tie all of these together. This is a trilogy, and it does feel connected, interconnected. I just don't like where 2 took it, and 3 wasn't good enough to pull it back. Well, that wraps up our Back to the Future retrospective series. If you like this, please listen to our other podcast. You can find all of our previous retrospective series at our homepage at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. And some of those series include The Terminator, Star Trek, Time Travel, Time Travel, <laughs> Friday the 13th. All our other retrospectives can be found at our homepage. You can also find a link to our forums there where you can discuss this movie and all our other movies in our retrospective series with other fans like yourself. And if you do like our shows, please leave a review for us on iTunes. You can go on our Twitter page or you can say something on our Facebook page. We're all over the place. What's our Twitter address, Arnie? Now Playing Pod. And our Facebook page is Now Playing Podcast. You can find links to both at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Fantastic. And now we move on to our next series. Is it Time Cop? They only made one of those. Did they? They made one Uh too many. (laughs) (laughs) I thought there were some direct-to-video sequels. No, they made a TV series. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. Stargate? Mm. Highlander? (laughs) Maybe we put the time clocks away. Maybe we get a little more down-to-earth. Maybe something timeless. There we go. Or timely. 
<laughs> and, and what would that be? We are going to look at the storied career of a timeless film director, Martin Scorsese, and his most recent incarnation, which is that he has been working with Leonardo DiCaprio and making some very interesting films that have won Oscars, that have gotten a lot of awards. But he is a guy that is known for his violent, dark crime movies. Has he sold out? Has he gotten too old? We don't know, but we're going to follow all of his most recent collaborations with Leonardo DiCaprio leading up to Shutter Island, his new horror movie. Opening in February. Okay, that's fantastic. So you can find those episodes here at our homepage or subscribe to us on iTunes, and we'll be back with that very shortly. So, Stuart Arney, thanks for joining me for this traveling through time. It was fun. Awesome. <laughs> Radical. Heavy. <laughs> Gag me with a spoon. Brody. Tubular. We'll I can do this you. all day. I'm going to moonwalk <laughs> out of here. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Now Playing's Back to the Future Movie Retrospective. My God, has it been that long? If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review for us on iTunes or post about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media avenue of choice. Say hi to your mom for me. You can find more Now Playing Retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Series include Halloween, Saw, Friday the 13th, Star Trek, Terminator, and others. So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, and is not affiliated with Universal Pictures, Amblin Entertainment, or U-Drive Productions. Back to the Future is copyright and trademark, Universal Pictures, and no infringement is intended. Twenty-one gigawatts. I was trying to think of something clever, like Wild Westy, and this is Arnie. No saloon for you, no. No hangout clock tower. You know, uh, yeah. I was trying. I was trying to get like Biff's voice in my head from this one, and you know, this is Arnie. You know, <laughs> the Polaroid is so eighties as it was. It was a perfect reference for this podcast. <laughs> oh, well, it's not a Polaroid. I, did I invent that, or maybe I, I'm just stuck in 1985? I don't know. You've got to get back to the future, Stuart. They don't even do that. It's Eastwood Canyon when they go back to 1985. Well, it's Ravine, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Nobody matter. cares. Yeah. No one cares. <laughs> yes. I know. I care, hair, but hair, yes. Hair split, but point yes. still valid. Arnie? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, hold on. Um. <laughs> Are we keeping you from something? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my daily <laughs> masturbation comes at this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to get it in there. <laughs> <laughs>